service. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rockerola. Hey, Discos, this two-part episode of Badlands is our first ever crossover episode with Disgraceland, the other show that I host. Everything in this episode on Sharon Tate happens in the forthcoming Disgraceland episodes on Mama Cass, but we use the Rashomon technique to tell the story from different perspectives. Sharon Tate and Mama Cass were good friends and were both involved in one of the biggest American crimes of the 20th century. Only one of them made it out alive. Both of these two-part episodes, like every episode of every show we produce, were heavily researched by myself and my writing team. Tom O'Neill and Dan Piping Brings Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s, is the fascinating and thoroughly researched and sourced book that we return to over and over. But we consulted many other sources as well, including Restless Souls, the Sharon Tate family's account of stardom, The Manson Murders and a Crusade for Justice by Elisa Statman with Bree Tate. Two books by Ed Sanders, including Sharon Tate, A Life, and also The Family and The Manson Murders by Greg King, Papa John by John Phillips, Waiting for the Sun, A Rock and Roll History of Los Angeles by Barney Hoskins, Go Where You Want to Go, An Oral History of the Mamas and the Papas by Matthew Greenwald, and What's It All About by Michael Caine. This episode is a composite of an account based in some part by all of those source materials and is inspired by true events. However, some scenes, characters, and names have been fictionalized for dramatic purposes. We encourage you to listen to both of the two-part episodes to unlock the full context of this complex and endlessly fascinating story. You can hear the Mama Cass episodes later this year in Season 10 of Disgraceland. And remember, there are always more sides to every story. Rockerola. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. Sharon Tate's life, career, and her tragic murder at the hands of the Manson family are so complex that we needed two episodes to properly tell this story. If you're just getting hip to this now, I suggest you hit pause and go back to the previous episode of Badlands, or part one of the Sharon Tate story, where we get into Sharon's ascending star, her desire to be taken seriously as an actress, her relationship with Hollywood's hippie den mother, Mama Cass Elliot, 
and not one but two of Cass's international drug-dealing boyfriends and her surprising connection to Charles Manson. In this episode, we further explore Sharon's entanglement with Charles Manson, her husband, filmmaker Roman Polanski, as well as Sharon's involvement in some of the long-rumored hedonistic events at her home on Cielo Drive. Events that put Sharon Tate at the center of a counter-narrative that explosively disrupts the supposed motive for the Manson family murders. And we debunk the myth that Sharon was blissfully ignorant of the darkness that had been bubbling beneath Hollywood's shiny veneer for years. We, of course, hit upon Sharon Tate's movie career, which was gaining steam at the time of her death, and offering her increasingly better roles in great films. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't a clip from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of Elizabeth Wheeler performing A Girl Like Me in 1912. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to Dennis Hopper's Easy Rider. And why would I play you that specific slice of one toke over the line, sweet Jesus cheese, could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on August 8th, 1969. And that was the day that Sharon Tate was brutally murdered along with four others at her home on Cielo Drive, bringing Hollywood to its knees and kicking off a narrative that would go unchallenged for decades as the secrets surrounding what really happened stayed buried until only recently. On this episode, Mama Cass, Charles Manson, the helter-skelter motive in flames, and Sharon Tate. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, season four, Hollywoodland. Wojtek Frykowski, the big Polish dude Roman Polanski had asked to keep his wife company while Roman was in London, pulled Jay Sebring's black Porsche 911 up the long driveway of 10050 Cielo Drive. He dropped the German-engineered sports car down a gear. It hummed low, almost a growl. The sound was an attention-getter for sure, and Wojtek loved the attention. He couldn't help but show off especially for that particular type of strange game he hunted from behind the wheel of Jay's immaculate sports car. Wojtek remembered what Roman taught him, where to look and how to approach. He found hustlers on the corner of Vine, young, clean, almost pretty. That's how he liked them. Not unlike Jay, not unlike Roman. Wojtek stepped out of the Porsche with the new strange in tow. Tonight it wasn't going to be like the going away party Sharon and Roman had thrown for Roman months ago. There would, of course, be plenty of famous faces as there always were at Cielo Drive, but there would be an equal number of anonymous faces, like the kid Wojtek had his arm around. And the kids seemed to level up Wojtek's mood, and Wojtek was still pissed that he caught a bad stash off Pick Dawson, one of Cass Elliott's drug dealing boy toys, a stash Wojtek couldn't sell. Wojtek would handle Pick eventually, and in the meantime, if his shitty little friend, Cass's other boyfriend, Billy Doyle, 
had the balls to show up, then Poitech would take care of him too. But for now, Poitech had other things on his mind, like this Vine Street vagrant who looked like he just stepped off a bus from Kansas. The whole Wojtek and Gibby as housemates situation made Sharon Tate anxious. She had called her husband, Roman Polanski, repeatedly in London and asked him to get rid of the house guests. Roman wouldn't hear of it. Sharon wasn't about to ask them to leave. She was too insecure and too shy. She put her hand on her belly and felt her baby move inside of her. More and more it was all she could think about. They said the third trimester was the hardest. Well, some did anyway. Others told her it was the best part. The home stretch. The final months where it all sinks in. You're going to be a mother. What if something happened? Something terrible? She couldn't stop thinking about Roman's last movie. It haunted her. Mia Farrow postpartum in that powder blue nightgown. The knife impossibly long in her tiny hand. She pulls back the curtain on her baby's jet black bassinet and her eyes go wide with shock. Her hand covers her gaping mouth. Jesus Christ, what if she, Sharon Tate, gave birth to some hellspawn? She knew it wasn't impossible. She knew about witchcraft, incantations, rituals, consecrated circles, the left-hand path. What if Wojtek and Gibby weren't just regular friends of Romans like Sharon thought? But what if they were like the old couple in the film, the Castavets, liaisons to Satan himself? What if their presence at Cielo Drive wasn't to keep Sharon company, but rather to do the bidding of their master, the Dark Lord, the diminutive director hiding out in London, his hands clean of the whole thing. And then he, Roman Polanski, would return just in time for Sharon, his wife, to give birth to that thing. And Sharon wouldn't be able to take her eyes off of it, not because she loved it, but because it frightened her. Its face, its indescribable face, an abomination, a sin, a chicken come home to roost. All of her worst fears manifested in this grotesque eight pound body. And she would have to constantly look at it because it was still her baby, but also because seeing is believing and all the while, all of them, Roman and Wojtek and Gibby and my God, maybe pick Dawson and Billy Doyle too. They would all say, Sharon, go back to bed. You know you're not supposed to be up and around, but there would be no stopping her. And she'd scream, what have you done to it? What have you done to its eyes? And she'd plead to God, why, why God, why me? Why now? But there would be no response because God was dead. Satan lives. Sharon realized she was sweating. Her heart was pounding. She kept her hands on her belly and tried to cast the awful thoughts from her head. She wondered if Rosemary's baby disturbed Roman as much as it disturbed her. Probably not. Roman got off on that kind of thing. He was her husband and she did love him, but Roman Polanski was a bit of a sick fuck. She tried to settle her mind. Where was Cass? Cass would center her. She always did. Though if Cass was going to be there, that meant Pick Dawson and Billy Doyle would show up eventually. Didn't matter that Roman had tossed them from their going away party back in March. Besides, Roman wasn't even in town. And while the little tyrants away, Pick and Billy will play. And Pick and Billy were always ready to play. Ditto for Wojtek. And Wojtek knew tonight wasn't no going away soiree. Tonight was different. The dancing, the drugs, the fucking, it was all different. Tonight was ritual. Tonight was Bacchanalian consecration. Tonight was fresh meat from the corner of vine. Tonight was whips, chains, wax, and whatever was freaky. 
Tonight was inspired by the satanic dream sequence from Rosemary's Baby. That movie didn't frighten the others the way it haunted Sharon. It cut them off just like it got Roman off, and they used it for fun, for kink. Roman, of course, he would get to watch it later, even though he was on another continent. And they were going to film the whole thing, show it to Roman when he returned from London. Roman loved his tapes. Roman loved young girls, and there would be plenty. Someone was busting in a dirty desert hippie harem. Someone said it was a guy named Charlie. As long as there was an angle, Charlie liked to share. So did Roman. Roman shared his home, his drugs, his money. And there have long been whispers from those who have been part of Roman's world that Roman even liked to share Sharon. It was his fantasy, rattling with unbridled creativity around his electric id in Technicolor. The tan skin on the blonde glistened in the candlelight. She moved in motion with the Ray Manzarek organ. It blasted from the home stereo system at ear-shattering volume. She was the only one not in a black hood or a mask. She wore red panties, and that was it. Bodies were everywhere, all twisted up together on the furniture, the carpeted floor, up against the walls. The blonde worked on the broad-shouldered bald dude with the Zorro mask. Behind him, a handsome young man waited his turn patiently, his beautiful brown coif needlessly hidden under the hood of his open robe. The pro noticed. The pro thought it a waste. How hard we work for things only to squander them in the heat of the moment. It proved what mattered in life. What was carnal, that was it. The rest was just window dressing. When you got right down to it, this whole hippie Hollywood dream was about one thing and one thing only, getting off. All roads led to here, hedonism. The chanting grew louder, in rhythm with Ray's Venice pump. It forced a sort of mass come on. The room itself seemed to elevate. Everywhere anyone looked, there was nothing but beautiful hedonism. All of it orchestrated for mass satisfaction. Young, old, male, female, bald, blonde, skinny, fat. Yes, even the big girl was in on the action. Though if one looked closer, beyond the half-assed pomp and feigned satanic circumstance, one could tell that the big girl's heart wasn't in it. Her heart was with another, and he was lost, gone, in the wind. Billy Doyle didn't show his face until later that evening, the post-party. When he did show, he came alone. Pick stayed away. Billy hoped that Wojtek would welcome him and forget about the bad stash Pickett sold him because Billy had a brand new bag of the good stuff. Billy would let bygones be bygones, but Wojtek wasn't having any of it. When Billy got to the post party, Wojtek got to him first. From where the others stood, Wojtek seemed to be playing nice, smiling, talking, giving Billy a friendly pat on the back. He handed Billy a drink, and Billy knocked it back in one gulp. Almost immediately, Billy began to stagger. He reached his arms out to steady himself. One foot clumsily fell in front of the other and suddenly Billy made a beeline for the bathroom. He could find his way there with his eyes closed. And moments later, he stumbled back into the living room, a lit joint between his lips. He coughed and exhaled a thick cloud of smoke. And Wojtek walked right up to Billy, who was now reeling from the effects of whatever illicit substances were laced in that drink, and placed his big Polish mitts on Billy's shoulders. The look in Billy's eyes said it all, just like Mia Farrow's eyes in Rosemary's Baby. The realization had sunk in. This was no dream. This was really happening. Billy wasn't just fucked. 
He was about to be revenge-fucked. Wojtek had him down on the floor now. Billy bit down a mouthful of carpet as Wojtek tightened the rope that bound Billy's arms behind his back. Billy screamed in pain, but not from the rope burning his wrists. He screamed because Wojtek was thrusting, thrusting, and thrusting against his backside, over and over. And Billy shrieked like a baby animal caught in a vice. The partygoers were shrieking now, laughing too, cheering, chanting, egging Wojtek on. They formed a sacred circle. They sounded out an incantation, and Billy's eyes were closed tight. The pain was unbearable, and from the right angle, with the light hitting just right, it looked as if Wojtek's eyes had gone completely black. Cass Elliot fought through tears of laughter when she told Sharon Tate all about it. How later that night, Billy Doyle came too, his pants around his ankles, his head woozy and his asshole throbbing with a hurt he'd never felt before. How once he'd realized what had happened, that he'd been forcibly sodomized in front of celebrity and scenester partygoers, he went into a rage. He had one thing on his mind, killing Wojtek Frykowski. The funniest part to Cass was, how before Billy could exact his revenge, he was swept away from the party, driven out to Cass's house in Laurel Canyon and tied to a tree so that he wasn't able to hurt anyone. Cass hadn't been there to witness it and she wished someone had taken a Polaroid for her. Sharon didn't find the whole thing as funny as Cass. In fact, she thought it was downright disturbing. How anyone could find the rape of another human being funny was perplexing to her. It was August of 1969. Wojtek Krakowski and Gibby Folger were still at Sharon's house. It had been nearly six months. The parties they threw were becoming increasingly strange and violent. Even when there wasn't a party, the place felt like Grand Central Station. Sharon wasn't a square, but still, all things in moderation. Moderation wasn't in Wojtek's vocabulary. Just ask Billy Doyle. Sharon continued to call Roman in London and beg him to return home or ask the house guests to leave but they weren't going anywhere. So Sharon changed her strategy and asked Roman if she could fly out to London and be with him there. And he told her that that wasn't a great idea for a woman eight months into her pregnancy. Sharon knew that that wasn't the real reason Roman didn't want her there. Alone in London, Roman could continue to be a less than stellar husband while not under the prying eyes of his wife and their friends. In other words, he was fucking anything that walked. Sharon didn't know about every single affair. She may not have known that Roman slept with Michelle Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas. Michelle's husband, John Phillips, he knew. Roman wasn't exactly discreet. John Phillips further knew that Michelle was also sleeping with Roman's friend, Warren Beatty. One night, Papa John got good and drunk and called up Warren to tell him if he didn't lay off his wife, he would fuck him up when he got back to LA. And that was a goddamn promise. According to many of Sharon's closest friends, as the summer of 1969 wore on, Sharon didn't get angry and jealous like Papa John. She just got miserable. Those same friends also claimed that Roman was mentally and physically abusive toward Sharon. There were those alleged orgies that he made her take part in, in the videotapes he allegedly made her watch. But there were other allegations too. That he hosted sex parties without Sharon's knowledge or consent that he humiliated her in front of her friends, that he told her what to wear, 
she asked Elke Sommer, the German actress who co-starred with Sharon in The Wrecking Crew, for advice. Elke was blunt. I'd take the next heavy object, whether it's an iron or a frying pan or a spade out in the yard, and I'd just brain them. On the afternoon of August 8th, 1969, Sharon welcomed her friend, English actress Joanna Pettit, to Cielo Drive for lunch. Sharon complained about Wojtek and Gibby, complained about Roman's absence. There were too many drugs in the house, too much chaos, and the environment was not conducive to a person preparing for a renewed life of domesticity. She needed her husband home. She needed strangers gone. She needed to focus on becoming a mother, but she'd never get there. Just hours later, Sharon Tate would be dead. Roman Polanski's flight got into LAX on the evening of August 10th, 1969, the day after authorities found mutilated bodies at his house on Cielo Drive, including his wife, who was carrying his unborn child. Not that Roman knew what day it was or whether he was in London or LA. He had been placed under heavy sedation. His eyelids felt like anvils. His brain slowed to a crawl. He began to think that the awful things he'd been told about were all a cruel fantasy. Now at LAX, although his mind was mush, Roma could still picture Sharon, her smile, her radiance, her perfection. How happy she had been the day they toured 10050 Cielo Drive. She didn't know why the previous tenants, actress Candace Bergen and record producer Terry Melcher, would have wanted to move out. Sharon called it the love house. Sharon lit up every room of that house, and now that light was forever burned out. And for what and why? The rumors were already worming their way through Hollywood's elite circles. Rumors that allegedly got to the truth of it all and were enough to make anyone even remotely connected to Sharon Tate sick with fear. But again, why? Roman wanted to know why. He had his suspicions, but he wanted to hear the rumors for himself. At LAX, he was put in a car headed for Paramount Pictures' lot, where a private suite had been arranged. More like a private bunker. He rolled down the car window and felt the fog of the sedation slowly lift. After five months away, he had forgotten what California smelled like, wild and fragrant. And before they reached Paramount, Roman told the driver to pull over at a Denny's restaurant. The fluorescence in the parking lot hummed like cicadas. Waiting for him was Wytold Kaksanowski, a Polish emigre and friend of Roman's, who spent a lot of time over the summer with Wojtek at Cielo Drive. Wytold gave Roman an insider's debriefing. Cielo Drive had gone feral in Roman's absence. Wojtek welcomed all kinds of freaks and creeps through the front door. Was he dealing? Roman wanted to know. Of course he was. He was sold a bad batch by Pick Dawson, the guy Roman had kicked out back in the spring. In retaliation, Wojtek raped Billy Doyle, Pick Dawson's friend, in front of a packed house. Billy vowed revenge. And Billy Doyle wasn't the only one in the revenge game. Pick Dawson had plenty of grudges to settle. Grudges with guys like Roman, rich Hollywood fuckos who tossed Pick's kind from their rich Hollywood fucko homes. Roman's head spun, and it wasn't from the sedation. He knew where the police looked first when a woman was murdered, her husband. He put Wojtek in that house. He failed to remove Wojtek from that house even though Sharon repeatedly begged him to do so. Later, 
At the Paramount lot, LAPD hooked Roman up to a polygraph. They asked about Wojtek Krakowski and picked Dawson. They asked about Cass Elliott and Billy Doyle. They asked about why I told Kaksanowski, asked Roman if he knew him. Roman said he didn't, even though the two had just met in a Denny's parking lot. Why? Roman wasn't exactly sure why. He was panicking. He wanted to distance himself from the whole ugly scene. A scene that he had, unwittingly or not, helped to create and foster. Didn't matter that he did so from halfway across the world. And there was plenty of evidence at that house that the police could use against him, like the movies, the videos, the goddamn videos made for Roman and made by Roman. The movies, the videos, they were already a dirty little rumor. And those rumors never quit. Those rumors were hard. The stories about what Roman forced Sharon to do on video with what some called quite a few recognizable Hollywood faces along with a supposed constant flow of underage girls who'd fallen into the cracks of the city of angels. Roman had to get back to Cielo Drive, no matter how difficult that would be. He had to make his way through a house he'd barely lived in for a few weeks, past P.I.G. written in his wife's blood on the front door. Blood that had gone from crimson to black, and the blood would be everywhere, on the carpet, the table, the couch, the whole place rank with that odor, a love house gone sour with evil and death. And Roman would make his way up the ladder into the loft where he would find what he was looking for and remove it, the videotape. And then he had to work his own angle, get the police off his back. And he knew exactly who to pin the blame on, someone close, someone he thought of as a friend someone who wanted revenge against Roman for all of his unforgivable sins. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Sex tapes, orgies, sadism, pedophilia, the rape of a duplicitous drug dealing boyfriend of Mama Cass. What consequence could any or all of this have? Roman Polanski heard it straight from the mouth of Wojtol Kaksanowski in a Denny's parking lot. Cielo Drive had gone feral. Wojtek Frykowski ran the place with a cadre of drug-dealing hippies. It was no longer a couple of random street kids from Hollywood anymore. They bust in underage girls from out in the desert, a harem someone called it, and a weird little dude with pinball eyes as their unsociable nucleus. Under Roman's brief reign, Cielo Drive was admittedly twisted, but now, with Wojtek running the show, it was dark. Still, Roman had to wonder, who would have benefited from the gruesome murders at Cielo Drive? Someone seeking revenge? For being humiliated in public? Or was it more personal than that? Perhaps revenge for a betrayal of the highest order? For being made a cuckold in the eyes of celebrities and scenesters? for being made to look like a goddamn fool. But what about John Phillips? He acted all nonchalant and friendly after the murders, but John had beef with Roman, just like John had beef with Gene Clark and Warren Beatty and whoever else was fucking his wife when he wasn't looking. John was crazy. Crazy enough to fuck around on his own time and not just with any woman, but with Mia Farrow not only the star of Rosemary's Baby, but the wife of Frank Sinatra, a guy probably more well-connected to qualified and capable men than any other in Los Angeles. 
When old Blue Eyes found out that John was screwing his wife, he sent some thugs to rough him up. And that strong-arm tactic was no doubt on John's mind when he called up Warren Beatty and threatened to alter his facial design. Or worse. And just because John hadn't personally called Roman to make a similar threat, didn't mean the threat wasn't being made. And if John was capable of making such a threat, what else was he capable of? Roman played it cool. He didn't tell anyone that in the weeks following the murder of his wife, he was scaling the walls of John Phillips' mock Tudor mansion in Bel Air, rummaging through John's Rolls Royce for bloodstains and fiber samples, sending samples of John's handwriting from his address book to a graphologist to see how it all stacked up in those big, bold PIG letters. And he certainly didn't tell John what he planned to do with the large cleaver he was holding at a beach house dinner party the two men both attended, cutting vegetables for that night's meal. And that was just a ruse. John was sitting on a couch in his swim trunk, stoned, immaculate, minding his own business, when he felt a hand grab hold of a chunk of his long, dirty, hippie hair and yank it back from behind. His neck pointed towards the ceiling. He nearly pissed himself when the cold, sharp blade of the cleaver got cozy with his throat. And then he heard that unmistakable voice in his accented English cry out in a menacing whisper. Did you kill Sharon? Did you? John Phillips may have been an asshole, and he may have been crazy, and he may have gone on to do absolutely repulsive things to his daughter in the years to come, but he wasn't a killer. He wasn't anywhere near 10050 Seattle Drive on the evening of August 8th, 1969. Just like Billy Doyle and Pick Dawson, both of whom were out of the country when the murders took place. But Hollywood knew better. The word was Billy and Pick were too smart to do the deed themselves. And that's where the weird little dude from the desert with the harem of underage crazy girls came back into the picture. Charles Manson. August 9th, 1969, 7 a.m. The phone next to Shirakatami's bed pierced the silence. Morning had broken. Shirak was still half asleep. He fumbled his hand around on the nightstand, his eyes barely open. He found the phone sitting next to one of his cameras and raised the receiver to his ear. The voice on the other end was distraught and spoke quickly. Chirac had to really concentrate to understand what he was being told. The voice was going so fast. And the person on the other end of the line told Chirac that five people were dead at 10050 Cielo Drive and that Sharon Tate was one of them. No one understood the profound beauty of Sharon Tate better than Chirac Atami. He wasn't just a friend. He was Sharon's personal photographer. His camera captured every side of Sharon Tate. The blissed out model, the chic actress, the wife and soon to be mother who was well on her way to a new kind of bliss, a domestic kind. It was beautiful to watch these stages of a person's life through a lens, especially a person like Sharon, who took each new leg of the journey in stride and seemed genuinely excited for what was awaiting her. If only she had known what was lurking around that final corner. No one could have known, or could they? Chirac switched on the radio and waited for a news report to give him more details. 15 minutes went by. 
then 30, and then an hour. Chirac had to be real damn patient before any radio station or news outlet made mention of the murders that day. Only later did Chirac discover that he had received the phone call informing him of the murders 90 minutes before Roman and Sharon's maid showed up at the house to discover the bodies and hysterically hoofed it to the neighbors who called 911. Chirac was literally one of the first people to know. But why? And just who was on the other end of the phone call at 7 a.m. that morning? Who told Chirac Atami the awful news about Sharon Tate before literally anyone else knew a damn thing? And the early morning caller was Reeve Whitson. Chirac called him a quote-unquote mystery man. He was friendly with Chirac, with Roman and Sharon and the rest of the crazy scene at Cielo Drive. But no one really knew what he did or where he came from or how he originally found his way into the Polanski Tate inner circle. He was a guy who was at the party, but was never part of the party. He kept to himself. He hung back. He played the sidelines. He was there watching, taking it all in, a zealot. But Reeve Whitson was written out of the Manson murders narrative that has come to be accepted as gospel over the last 50 years. LA County Deputy District Attorney Vincent Bugliosi, the man who successfully prosecuted Charles Manson and his family, never once mentioned Whitson in his best-selling book, Helter Skelter, long considered the conclusive text on the case. And Reeve Whitson was far from the only discrepancy in that supposedly truth-telling tone. At the trial, Chirac testified that five months prior to the murders, in March 1969, he was visiting Sharon at her house when Charles Manson showed up, out of the blue, looking for Terry Melcher the record producer and previous tenant at 10050 Cielo Drive. Chirac informed Manson that Melcher no longer lived there, while Sharon, Jay Sebring, Wojtek Frykowski, and Abigail Folger watched on from the next room. This was crucial testimony that proved that Charles Manson both knew of the existence of the house and of the people who were living there. But decades later, Chirac Hatami told author Tom O'Neill, whose intensely researched book, Chaos, looked to right the wrongs of Bugliosi and Helter Skelter, that he was never 100% sure that the man who showed up that day in March was actually Charles Manson. Could have been someone else, but he was forced by Reeve Whitson to testify without a doubt that he saw Manson at the house that day. It was important for Bugliosi's narrative. It put Manson on the scene. When Sharok balked, Whitson threatened deportation back to Iran if he didn't play ball. Deportation? Who the hell was this Reeve Whitson guy? According to Tom O'Neill's book, Reeve Whitson proved that he was playing ball by walking Sharok over to his car and showing him his gun. O'Neill's investigation into the background of Reeve Whitson raised even more questions. Was he a plant? And if so, for whom? FBI, Secret Service, CIA? Did the federal government have something to do with the murders of Sharon Tate? Did the federal government have something to do with Charles Manson? It sounds totally fucking crazy when you look at all the information. Consider the following. A drug burn, the rape of a drug dealer in retaliation, a revenge plot, an aggrieved cult leader with acid-induced scrambled eggs for brains, an undercover agent coaxing desired testimonies out of witnesses, and at the center of it all, a gorgeous actress taken far too soon. And for what? The whole thing is so nuts 
It ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcasts because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. Double Elvis.